everyone. Before we get started, I just want to let you know our uh, spring fundraising drive has just begun and we are hoping to raise $30,000 by June 10th. So if you are interested in supporting the Institute, um, including this podcast and all the other education and trainings that we do, um, please make a donation by clicking on the link in the show notes or going to our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks. Anthology podcast from the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago. For this episode of Young in the World, Myth, Archetypes, and Avatar Personas in Online Games, Patricia Martin talks with University of Chicago professor and online game designer Patrick Jagoda, PhD, about ways that online games and new media apply Jungian theory to create emotional bonds with users. Now let's jump right in. Welcome. This is Patricia Martin, and I'm your host for Young in the World today. We'll be talking with Patrick Jagoda as part of our examination into the process of individuation in the digital culture. Let me introduce Patrick Jagoda to you. Patrick is a professor of cinema and media studies, English, obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Chicago. He is also the executive editor of Critical Inquiry, and director of the Weston Game Lab. Patrick's books include Network Aesthetics, Experimental Games, and Transmedia Stories, Narrative Methods for Public Health and Social Justice, forthcoming with Arisha Bennett and Aislinn Sparrow. He's the recipient of a 2020 Guggenheim Fellowship, and he writes and talks about the digital culture, most specifically He has an interest in games, online games, virtual games. We're so, so delighted to have you on Jung in the World today, Patrick. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Patricia. Well, I I know as I read your introduction to our audience, they're going to be curious about this last credential of where you teach. The University of Chicago, you teach obstetrics and gynecology and you know, forgive me for zeroing in right there. Can you explain that, how that fits? Sure. Uh, Many years ago, I started doing work with a medical doctor who was an OBGYN, and we started making serious games about sexual and reproductive health. And so coming in as a literary person and and a game designer, I was able to learn more about that field. And eventually, just because of grants that we were on through the NIH, I ended up joining that department in addition to my core humanities departments. Oh, that's so interesting. And I, you know, I've kind of seen this trend as I interview people about their work and their interests in the digital age. You know, there seem to be people who are programmers and come out of 
computer science. And then there are people who come out of storytelling. And interestingly, they have humanities backgrounds and literary backgrounds. And I think you fall into the latter. You came into uh, your undergrad studying literature. Can you talk about the journey you've been on to get to where you're at? Sure. I I studied uh, English and philosophy and creative writing and political science when I was an undergrad. And I originally completed my PhD in English before shifting to media studies and game design. So in grad school, I was studying American literature, novels, poems, theater, that kind of thing. And this, of course, included reading psychoanalysis, right? Like Freud, Lacan, and Jung, since there have been countless connections between literary studies and psychoanalysis. Uh, Many of the same analytical skills that I built up in literary criticism apply to the analysis of, of video games overall. So like novels, most video games have narrative beats characters, even text. So one of my favorite video games, uh, Disco Elysium, is made up of over one million words, which is the size of five very, very long 200,000 word novels. And, you know, the comparison doesn't just come in with novels. It it happens with poetry, too. So Mm -hmm. many games use forms of condensation that you see in imagistic poetry. So I mean... um, the kind of poetry practiced by modernist writers in the uh, early 20th century, like Ezra Pound or HD or William Carlos Williams. And like that kind of poetry, games often condense their meanings through literal visual images rather than word images. So there's a surprising number of connections between uh, literature and games. And, and I know I know literature was important for Jung in the ways he saw it as an expression of shared consciousness and the collective unconscious. And I think if he were alive today, he would find digital and networked games incredibly interesting. They wouldn't just reflect some of his theories. Games also represent a large-scale experimental space in which you can see shared consciousness shifting in real time as countless players build and live in worlds together. That is fascinating to me because you're right. Jung was not only fascinated by storytelling and mythology um, because I think it was a reflection of how the collective unconscious actually works that, you know, we project what we need as a, as a human race so that we can survive and succeed and that those turn into stories And so it's very interesting to me to think about games as a projection of something people need. And so I wonder, you know, what do people get out of, uh, you know, spending time on online games? Because people invest a lot of time in it. Yeah. And, and, and so, so many people play games, right? I mean, this is worth, worth remembering that like the population of large games is, you know, like only, China and India would have larger populations. So like over 700 million people have played Minecraft or Among Us and Candy Crush had 500 million daily players each at one point or Fortnite, right, has 350 million registered accounts. So these are large social worlds that we're, that we're talking about. Um, and I think different things are appealing about them to people. Um, you know, uh, especially when these games are worlds, they invite a variety of play styles. 
So for example, I, I, I might join a game because I want a combat challenge, but I also might not care about combat at all and instead care about multilinear storytelling. Um, but gameplay people and narrative people aren't the only two types of people attracted to games. Other people join for social reasons. Um, in other words, I might not care about either the game mechanics or the story and really just want to be co-present with other people online. Um, you know, still other pleasures are uh, environmental exploration or lore production or completing every single challenge in a game, even beyond the major events or quests. But I think, you know, the one of the major draws um, of online video games is the, the type of social interaction and immersion that such games provide. I remember in the, the 1980s and the 1990s, there was a widespread belief that video games were antisocial or at least asocial. Uh, there was this image of a gamer being an adolescent boy playing alone in his parents' basement. It was very gendered in that way. Um, well, sure, there are single-player games that promote isolation, but a very large percentage of games are deeply social, whether you play them on a couch with another person or across a network with many other people. And I, th I think people value the types of social connections they can build up in a virtual world. This is one reason that digital games like Animal Crossing or Fortnite uh, were such huge hits during the COVID-19 pandemic era. They provided people with social worlds when people were otherwise uh, socially isolated. That makes sense to me. And it also makes sense to me that it should become, a, I guess what Jung would call it would be a container. A container is, you know, right now, we're in a container together, Patrick, you, me, our intern, Avery, who is uh, recording this and, and, and running sound, we, we're forming another consciousness, a third consciousness or a fourth consciousness, I should say, um, that is just the group consciousness. And so as you, you're a smart guy, you know, you've studied literature, you understand human motivation. Um, if literature teaches you nothing, it teaches you that. Why is a character doing X and why are they suffering trauma from Y? And right. So how would you say the collective develops in a game? Meaning, have you actually observed that a game shows signs of having a, co a collective unconscious? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think this happens most profoundly in massively multiplayer online games that are oftentimes have player bases of millions of people. And I think what distinguishes those games is that they have a permanent existence, right? So when I, when I play a traditional single player game, I turn it on on my console or on my computer and I just play through it. But with um, you know games that went go back to like Ultima and EverQuest and World of Warcraft and Eve mm -hmm. Online and many contemporary games, those servers are are running. That world is running even if you're not there. So it's very much like everyday life. Mm -hmm. If I have a guild and I have you know twenty other people or a hundred other people that I rely on, I may see them once a day for an hour or two hours or even four hours. Um, but there may be times that they're there and I'm not. And they may report something to me or I might report something to them. So we're, we're creating, really co-creating um, this um, shared organization in the form of a guild and uh, creating friendships and other kinds of relations with people um, in, this, in this ongoing space. 
Well, that, that's very interesting as well, because I think this permanent existence kind of tells me that these uh, th- these audiences are really, truly building community out of this. So there has to be something that is really valuable to them. And one of the things I wonder about is because, you know, games are so symbolic, right? There are, you know, the, the homes you choose, the outfits you choose, the, you know, the avatar that you develop, the, the weapons you, you, you know, draw to yourself. Um, so it makes me wonder, um, as they, these populations become more and more permanent, what kinds of ways are you seeing these avatars? Or do you suspect, you probably, I don't know if you've researched this, but do you suspect that having an avatar is providing some sort of function or some sort of opportunity potential for the psyche? Yeah, I mean, there's there's more that we could say about the symbolic and the archetypal, but on the on the point of avatars, absolutely, right? Players don't just watch avatars or identify with them in the way that you would with a film character. The avatar is literally the vehicle through which you explore the game world and make decisions. So you, you don't just recognize a role, you inhabit it and engage it in role-playing. And in many games, you don't just get one avatar, you get a variety of different personas and outfits and items with unique abilities. So you might be able to morph from a brawny warrior to a magical wizard and so forth. And and such figures appear in traditional stories too. Maybe one important difference is that in video games, your persona has less to do with who you are than what you can do. In other words, it's less about character than action. And this really highlights something that's fundamental about video games. Um, Games are made up of actions. They literally don't exist unless you press the buttons and make decisions and move the character through this world. So that's very different from traditional media. Um, And there's a a persistence, even a centrality of concepts like persona here, Uh, right? Personas become important to what you can and cannot do in a game, right? A good example of this would be Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation. So this is a game that is set in in the 18th century in colonial America, mostly in New Orleans. And you play as an Afro-French woman who can switch between three personas. You can be an assassin, an enslaved person, or a lady. And each of these personas allows her to pass and perform key tasks in different ways. So as the player, you have to be deeply aware of context to know how best to transform your avatar uh, because how you look determines how you act and how people react to you. Wow, so that's a very interesting thing. It is not just about identity. It's also about gesture. Yes. So, And in fact, gesture is probably more important to defining the identity than it would be in everyday street life. Is that what? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now I do want to go back to this idea of symbols and archetypes. Um, You know, Carl Jung had the difficult pioneering job of explaining very abstruse, very metaphysical um, conditions under which we develop as human beings. And you know, he had to find a language for that. And so he ended up speaking in the language of the unconscious, which is 
archetypes and and symbols. So how does that play out in the game world? Yeah, when we when we traditionally think of archetypes, we think of stories, fairy tales, myths, sometimes films like Star Wars, right? But but video games also draw on archetypes and ask players to enact journeys. Uh, a video game has to communicate efficiently, right? Many games might have a little bit of text-based storytelling or voiceover, but so much of the work is happening through visual representation of characters. So, you know, let's let's think about classical games for a moment. So many Jungian archetypes are at play there. So for instance, the, the 1987 game, Zelda II, The Adventures of Link, um, has a final battle that's extremely archetypal. You play as a hero, Link, whose uh, avatar is a version of you. You explore and fight your way through the fantasy realm of Hyrule. But the final boss of the game is Link's shadow, who serves as the opposite of the ego image. So there's there's an obvious example. And shadow archetypes are, are common across video games. Um, another um, example would be uh, the use of Jung's concepts of the persona in the best-selling Japanese series, which is aptly titled Persona. Um, right. And this is this is a game series that's all about the images or sometimes the masks that we present to the world. So as a player, you um, you literally put on different personas in order to traverse different challenges. And to be clear, the Persona series isn't some minor artsy series. It's sold over 15 million units at $60 or so per game. So we're talking about a game series that's made almost a billion dollars worldwide. And Jung's concepts are all over that game, right? So Persona is about the relationship between the conscious and the unconscious mind. It includes concepts like the shadow, uh, anima and animus, collective unconscious, archetypes. Um, and, and in a variety of explicit ways, this game draws on the major arcana of tarot cards, which are, of course, archetypal in their own way. So the main character, for instance, is referred to as a, as a trickster or a jokester many times throughout. Um, but, I, but I think more broadly, uh, core archetypes are all over video games. Um, almost every game has a hero, a wise old sage, a great mother, a devil or villain, a mentor, right? It, it, it's worth noting that many video games pick up from existing narrative genres like fantasy or science fiction, which have much longer histories of, of using archetypes that games just build on top of. So I'm fascinated by, you know, your examples, which are really apt because they go right to the heart of how we create meaning. Um, as human, as human beings, we, we we're meaning making machines and it sounds like this gets baked into games. And so people kind of get to, to discover meaning as they go. One of the things that I wonder about when I think about the digital culture is, you know, Jung wanted people to understand that the way toward wholeness in their lives was to merge as much as possible and as often as possible the unconscious with the conscious in order to behold, to raise what was from the unconscious into consciousness. And, and all of these elements that you describe seem like, oh, wow, this should be a little, you know, consciousness engine. Mm -hmm. But I'm not really convinced that the digital realm delivers more consciousness. Do you have thoughts on that? Can you say more about that? What, what do you mean by the so by consciousness? I, I think, oh, sorry. <laughs> Please, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I can I can amplify that a little bit. In other words, I wonder if we are mindlessly mm. 
engaging without really develop any deeper consciousness about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we can derive lessons from that. Is it, is it, is our experience in the digital culture just a distraction or is it how we're making meaning now? And is that meaning helping us become more whole? It's a big question. It is a big question. I mean, look, I, I teach courses at the university of Chicago that are focused on game studies. So we, analyze games in the way that people might analyze poems or novels in in a traditional English classroom. And something that I found is that our our students come in with like vast archives of knowledge of different video games. I mean, many of them have played more games than I have and certainly no games that I don't know as well. Um, But many of them haven't had an opportunity to take games seriously as cultural objects as objects of creative interdisciplinary production. And, and so I think that like maintaining a kind of uh, critical language or consciousness about video games requires some degree of literacy beyond playing the games themselves. Some people already have that, right? They, they play games, they analyze them deeply, they think and live with them. Uh, other people might play you know, say first-person shooters like Overwatch or something or League of Legends, which require a great deal of strategic and tactical thought and hand-eye coordination, but they may never have spent a day in their life thinking about the deeper significance of those kinds of games. So I actually think games literacy is something that needs to be taught or at least engaged in. It's not something that comes naturally just with playing games. Yeah, I this, this is the conclusion I've arrived at too. It's in other words, it's it's not that the te- technology is time-wasting or bad for you, or it's more that there's a big difference between engaging in it consciously, as if to say, this is what I'm getting out of this, and this is how much I want to give to it, versus getting sucked in. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think we're tipping more toward getting sucked in. Um, and that makes me want to ask you about some other technologies. Because you know so much, you have so much insight, I'm curious to know your thoughts on TikTok. It's it's the rising platform, really brief little videos, very entertaining. What's your take? I think for me, at least, it's very easily easy to zone out watching one TikTok after another and getting into this flow, right? We used to talk about with early television even that there was a, a televisual flow that moved from watching a program on broadcast TV to moving into an advertisement back into the program. And people could really like zone out watching hours and hours of TV every day. Um, people watch less traditional television now, uh, but they of course watched more from streaming platforms, whether that's Netflix or Amazon or YouTube or, or TikTok, certainly. Um, and I think, you know, TikToks on the one hand are, a great space of ordinary creativity. Um, And I think they have value in that. Um, On the other hand, right, like one can very easily go into autopilot and just habitually consume TikToks without having any kind of critical edge or distance from them. Uh, Because of course, this is still a platform that's, that's a corporate platform, right? That's created Mm -hmm. for profit. And so not everything about such a platform is going to serve the people who participate in it. Well, that makes me wonder about just my own limited experience of being in online games. 
that immersive quality that you're talking about, where you just get totally immersed in it. And um, I once had the opportunity to work with the producers of Wicked, and I asked them what they thought the recipe to their success was. And they definitely, oh, without a, they all said it in unison, the producer group, oh, the world of the play. We were able to create a world that was completely immersive so that when you left the theater, you were stepping back into reality as if you had been transported, you know, you've been beamed back down. And so I want to talk about that with, with games. Every time I go in there, I feel like I'm in a dream world. And, uh, you know, dreams for young had a lot of meaning, but like, is that part of the recipe of success too, that you, you know, games need to transport you into another world? Yes. Uh, that, that's a really interesting comparison. So I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I had a conversation a few years ago, 10 years ago, with uh, video game artist Ido Stern, uh, and he had just received a, a fellowship and spent a year playing World of Warcraft very intensely during that fellowship. And I asked him why he decided to go all in on one game like that. And he said something interesting to me. He said, if you were an artist in the 1960s or 1970s, you might have taken hallucinogenic drugs like mushrooms, for instance. Like that would have just been something um, that would have been part of the creative process. If you were an artist in the 2000s, you would play online games to get the same effect. And though he was joking to some degree, I think that's absolutely true, right? There's, and I know that drugs and dreams are not the same thing. But I, I do like the idea of video, uh, a video game as a dreamscape. When I play um, a video game for longer than I should, several hours in, I can sense effects below the level of consciousness, which are influencing me at the level of proprioception and kinesthetics and audiovisual immersion. Um, you know, and, and there are, in fact, games that are explicitly designed to operate like dreams. Uh, the game creation system Dreams is designed to do exactly this. There are um, independent games that use surrealism to produce this effect like uh, You May Nikki or Kentucky Route Zero or Anodyne or Inscription. Um, but here's the strange thing. Even mainstream video games are more dreamlike and more surreal than I think we often give them credit for. Um, so billions of people have played the original Super Mario Brothers by this point. What's going on in that game? You play as a plumber who goes down into pipes with oversized piranha plants in them. You, <laughs> you jump up to get question mark blocks and throw turtle shells around and route to saving a princess from a huge reptile villain while you're in a flow state. Now that sounds like a dream, right? And that's right. the most famous video game of all time. So that's so, can you make more of that and, and, and maybe tie it to what you were saying uh, about, you know, after you play for a while, you begin to sense that something's at work, it, you know, beneath the level of consciousness. Talk more about this. Yeah. So, um, so a few years ago, I was playing this independent video game Braid for the first time. And it's a kind of like puzzle solving platformer game. And some of the puzzles are quite intricate in terms of spatial relations, um, and I remember, you know, being up, not being able to solve a puzzle for like 20 minutes and then giving up in frustration and going to bed. And then the next morning I wake up 
before I've had my coffee, before I've woken up, I go straight to the laptop. I go with the same puzzle and I solve it in 30 seconds. What happened there, right? There was like some form of unconscious processing that happened overnight that literally produced the solution to that puzzle, which my conscious mind was frustrated by and could in no way solve prior to my, my going to sleep. Um, so because, because games are so habit-based in terms of like mechanics that you reproduce, I think they, they, they line up with certain kinds of, of, of dream logics. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's something called the Tetris effect, uh, which basically describes how people who have been playing games for long periods of time, like Tetris, for instance, or games with, uh, unique repeated mechanics like portal will go back out into the real world and feel that mechanic even in the real world and want to reproduce it right you see those blocks falling in front of your eyes but you also mm -hmm. have the feeling of wanting to spin them around or to alter gravity so we know that games have these kinds of cognitive effects for sure and so there must be thing there must be things happening at the unconscious level as well it's a fa fascinating uh, proposition, and I think we're just sort of really starting to get our arms around these technologies as cultural artifacts that tell us something about who we're becoming as a society. Have you given that any thought? Like, how are games changing the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves? Yeah, my, my, my last book, <laughs> Experimental Games, was was very much about this topic. It was thinking about... Um, what did it mean for video games to emerge um, in the latter half of the 20th century at the same time that computation was, was arising, at the same time that we had uh, new economic movements like neoliberalism coming into effect, uh, at the same time that we had economic theories like economic game theory or behavioral economics coming into existence. Um, and so I think that there are a variety of ways in which video games are the predominant cultural form of our time, not just because younger people play them so much, but because they align so much with the economic, political, and technological realities of the early 21st century. So as we think about going forward, and you know, I know that games are played by everybody, and from all different age groups, but there is a large swath of uh, young people who are drawn into games. Um, and that partly might be because they have the time, the inclination, their friends are playing. It can take them out of isolation if they're living in a uh, not so populous area. But, uh, you know, people have a lot of concern about this. There's a lot of hand wringing about where this is taking the next generation. And uh, I, I, again, I don't like to poo-poo the, the technology out of hand. I'd, I'd like to talk about the pros and cons of this generation that has grown up with online gaming. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, like, like anything else, games can be positive or negative depending on the broader context. So I think it's worth remembering that any new form or medium is often criticized at the moment of its inception. So hundreds of years ago, novels were criticized for distracting the working classes from their labor. And yet they're considered a high cultural form in our own time. Or people were scared of television violence, creating an epidemic of monkey see, monkey do behavior with lines like, kids don't try this at home. 
Um, so in media studies, we know that there's the fear of new things in the broader public historically. That's in no way unique to video games. Um, but I think you're right that games are attacked for being uh, addictive, violent, and many other things. And of course, games can be addictive like anything else. And some of our games are extremely violent. Uh, at the same time, most studies that I've read don't show a strong link or correlation between games and violence. Um, you, you often hear in the media, right, that there's a connection between video games and gun deaths in particular. Um, yes. But if you if you compare countries with the highest number of video game players to countries with the highest number of violent gun deaths, they don't align. Japan, ah. China the UK and the US all have extremely high numbers of video game players, but only one of those countries has incredibly high numbers of deaths from gun violence, the US, obviously. So there are other much more alarming factors like underinvestment in education, uh, ineffective gun laws and things like that that are more likely causing those same problems. Um, so I think it's better to think about the, the diet of games you consume, right? If, if I asked you, um, is food socially destructive? You'd likely say no, because human beings need food to survive. Yet, you know, we know that an unhealthy diet can obviously be bad for your health. So the same is true in terms of the kind of games we consume and how we think about them. You know, just as you were t answering that question, it struck me that you made the uh, analogy to food sustenance mm -hmm. and you know, Jung argued at one point that what the world was trading for its uh, love of technology was the opportunity for enchantment, that we would become more rigorously uh, cognitive and less magical. And the truth is that we need both. And so I wonder if games provide any of that enchantment? Do you have thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. I, mean, I, I think, you know, I'll turn to Jung here for a second, which is like in his discussion of the symbolic life, Jung recounts a childhood memory of playing with building blocks that he uses to build little houses and castles and entire villages. And um, in that memory, we see, you know, like uh, the importance of play to the developmental process or to trial and error and experimentation um, with our lives. I mean, of course, like building a world and, and playing with it uh, produces meaning about your own everyday life in a variety of ways. Um, there's this term from Johann Hoisinger, who is um, one of the first theorists of, of play, uh, where he coined the term magic circle. And he said that games constitute a magic circle that is a space and time outside of everyday reality. When I enter into any kind of game or sport, uh, there's a different set of rules. So let's take an extreme case. If I'm a boxer and I stand and I step into the boxing ring, I don't watch boxing. So this is a very bad example, but I'm taking it as an <laughs> extreme violent example, right? right. Um, so you step into the boxing ring and suddenly you can hit someone else and not get prosecuted for it. In fact, you, you not only can knock someone out, you get rewarded for knocking someone out. Normally that would send you straight to prison or indirectly so after your trial. Here you get rewarded for it because the boxing ring is literally a magic circle that has its own time and space. And I think these online games that we're talking about 
operate even more so in that sense. Like once I'm in that world for several hours, like I'm not Patrick anymore. I'm a wizard or I'm a warrior or I'm a scientist or I'm, you know, whatever avatar I might be controlling, especially because the other people in that magic circle are helping me make it real. And in some ways it is real. It isn't an escape. It isn't a fantasy. It's another way of processing who I am and actually growing as a person in my relationships to other people. You know, I think that's a stunning answer in that it, it, it sort of leads us to under, understanding the bigger picture here, which is that by being able to experiment with avatars, by all the symbolic um, tools that, that appear, you know, um, and, and powers that are granted you as, as, as a player in an online game, it, it is a realm of enchantment. And so it's kind of the best of both worlds in that, yes, you know, we're able to sustain this sort of technological play, but we're also inviting experimentation that leads us to understand who we are. I mean, it's, it's really quite... It, it's quite magical all by itself, isn't it, as a proposition? <laughs> yeah, and, and we're experimenting with who we are. We're helping other people discover who they are. And we're actually experimenting with the very technologies that make up our everyday lives. I may never think about how my smartphone works or how my computer works when I'm using it, you know, to look at my step count or, you know, to do to go to a word processor to, to write a chapter of a book or something. But when I'm playing a game, the kinds of algorithmic mechanics that I'm engaging in actually bring me closer to the machine, right? They give me a sense of like what this entire infrastructure is that in many ways constitutes the early 21st century. So if I'm thinking about what I'm doing while I'm playing a game, I'm actually getting deep insights into what it means to be a human being in this particular historical moment. Patrick Jagoda, thank you for being in our circle today. It's been playful and interesting and exciting. And I I can't thank you enough for shedding more light on what it means to individuate in the digital culture today. Thanks so much for having me in this magic circle. Really, really enjoyed it. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, live and self-study courses, archives, this podcast, our blog, or to find Jungian analysts near you, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks to our 2022 donors who gave at the contributor level or above. Barbara Anand, Juni Alcott, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Building Leaders Inc., Judith Cooper, David J. Dalrymple, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Ryan Mayer, Boris Matthews, Judith A. Robert, Diane Sherwood, Lawrence C. Tingley, Deborah Tobin, Don L. Troyer, Robert Ulrich, Gerald A. Weiner, Ellen Young, and Wei Zhang. You can support this podcast by making a donation at our website, newchicago.org.